Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. And uh, joining me today are my two co-hosts, Jim Marty of Bridge West. Uh, Jim, how are you doing today? It's just a beautiful day here in Denver. I think we're going to hit 66 degrees and uh, not a cloud in the sky. So I've been outside walking around, just beautiful outside. Can't beat that. And uh, our other co-host, Rob Hunt of uh, Linnae Holdings. Rob, how are you doing out in California? I suppose you're going to have a similar statement for us too, aren't you? For once, Larry, I don't. It's actually a rainy day out here. It's relatively cold, and um, we, uh, we've got a lot of our windows open today to let the cool breeze in. Um, but uh, I am locked in my office writing contracts all day, so unfortunately I'm not out and about and uh, really wishing I was in the mountains of Colorado right now. Yeah, that sounds like the place to be. It's bright and sunny here, 50 degrees, but it's just a big mush puddle with all the snow that we've had that's just melting all over the place. So we've got a really, really exciting show today. Uh, Rob, give uh, the listeners a quick uh, rundown on what we're going to be talking about. So today's a, a fun day for us because the topic is a good festive one. We're going to talk about uh, in the springtime how the Grateful Dead would often open up their year by either playing a Chinese New Year's uh, run or a Mardi Gras run, oftentimes in their hometown of either Oakland or San Francisco, and uh, talking about how that was you know, frequently the time that the Grateful Dead would introduce new material for the year, and oftentimes, almost always, bring out some sort of a fun guest, whether it was you know, New Orleans royalty like the Neville Brothers or the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, but it was always a time where they'd, uh, they'd bring in some fun guests to play alongside with them. So we were going to talk about the fun that uh, was always Mardi Gras. Excellent, excellent. And we have a uh, special guest on our show today, Will Reed of Canna Planners. Canna Planners does a whole lot, so what I'm going to do is take this opportunity to introduce Will to our listeners. Will, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. We're very happy to have you here. Give us a little bit of background on yourself, uh, what Canna Planners is all about, and how you got from wherever you were to where you are today. <laughs> okay, I'll see if I can sum it up real quickly. Well, I'll start kind of in the middle. I started Canna Planners um, in 2015 after a trip out to Colorado just to check. I, so I'm a Vermonter. So I was I was thinking about starting a company in Vermont. And at the time, I was kind of seeing how the um, a potential legal industry was going to play out in Vermont. Uh, it took five years to, to play out, but it, it finally played out. But in the meantime, I was curious how I could be in this industry, which, you know, uh, I had admired uh, as a as a business person, but as a piece of my life and as a as a cultural component of kind of who I am, cannabis has always been important. So I come from a marketing background, and at, you know, upon taking this trip to Colorado, um, and again, this is years ago, was shocked with how bad everything looked, <laughs> how uh, unsettling the retail experience was. I, I'll I'll add to that context that I'm uh, also. Uh, a former Apple employee for many, many years in Manhattan. And so I was, you know, beaten with the stick of brand and and retail experience and all of these things. So just going out to Colorado, I kind of expected something wonderful and it was it was a little weird. Fast forward to now, everything's an Apple store and everything kind of, you know, looks fancy and, and clean. Um, but back then, not so much. So coming back to Vermont and um, knowing that in the Northeast, uh, you know, uh, things were about to happen in Massachusetts, in Maine, certainly. Um, all these states were starting to pick up legalization uh, or new medical uh, laws. So I, I wanted to be a part of, uh, uh, you know, a part of the industry. 
so websites, you know, that, that was my background. That was my agency background, creating digital, you know, working digital marketing solutions for clients of all, all types. And I, what I wanted to do was, was give that service to just the cannabis industry. So that, that's what we did. Um, yeah. And like I said, and prior to that, I, I was working at a, a, a web agency. And prior to that, I was working for Apple for a long time. And we will talk about when we get into the Grateful Dead side of this, uh, my my time at Apple will will come back around how Apple influenced my my deadheadedness. So so can of planners is if I if I understanding it correctly you're it's not even just an ad agency uh you're 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 really committed to helping uh shape the discussion on what the cannabis industry is and what it's all about certainly like that's my superhero costume is you know so at the root of it our services are we build websites we create brands uh we apply those brands to cool things like products or signage or or what whatever you know sweatshirt stuff everything whatever the client needs and then we you know we put those companies online on a managed platform that we've created um, and then we do whatever they need us to do to help them market themselves online and and because of cannabis and I'm sure we'll get into this too but because of restrictions within the industry there's restrictions to what we do so our our bread and butter in terms of digital marketing is SEO and and email marketing we do lots of video production and stuff like that too but well, that made me think of some questions, uh, Jim here. So, you know, every state is a silo, right? There's no cross-border traffic, whether it's medical or adult use. Um, what is your opinion on, on that limiting a national brand? Well, let me answer that question a little. Let me, let me put that question onto me as a, as a growing company in the industry, because I, I would say that it actually presents a really comfortable and I'd, I'd even say responsible trajectory for growth, right? Like we can only grow as quickly as states legalize, right? So from a CBD perspective, we can market everybody nationally and even internationally uh, to some extent. The places where our clients are is based off of the, the you know, legalities and, and whether or not that state's adopted any legalization laws. Well, Will, let me ask you a question about that. Sure. One of my big uh, issues uh, with legal cannabis is this whole idea of normalization. So it ties in exactly to what you're saying. And, you know, we could have a guy like Jim talk for hours about, you know, where, where a state like Colorado is right now in terms of the role that uh, a legal cannabis plays in Colorado and how it's, it's you know, it, it, it's as commonplace as, you know, going down to the store to buy a quart of milk, but in the rest of the country, it's not really quite like that. And you know, you take a state like Illinois, which has had an adult use program for a year, and we're kind of slowly but surely working our way towards normalization, and, and we'll get there eventually. Uh, but that's one way I see you helping. But the other way is you take some of these other states that haven't legalized yet, and you know they're on the fence and they're not sure what to do. And you know, I think it's just as important, you know, for guys like you to be able to help the rest of us send the message to them, to the people in those states that you know, it's it's okay to vote yes, it's okay to say we want legalization. You know, you're not going to all go running out and turn into schizophrenics. You know, you're not going to, you know, abandon your children. You can lead a very normal life and enjoy cannabis. Totally, I have a, I have definitely a couple responses to the, to that. The first being is I, I put an incredible amount of responsibility, you know, just self-imposed weight on the shoulder, you know, my shoulders, but also my team, you know, my team's shoulders in terms of 
um, how we want our clients to position themselves, right? So being transparent, having direct lines of communication, providing, you know, certificates of analysis, FDA disclaim, like all of these things are, are very important and we push heavily onto our clients because that's part of normalization. The other side of it is is the design side of it. So in my trip to Colorado, one thing I know, you know, and, and you guys have seen this, I'm sure all, all the listeners have seen this, the green cross is everywhere. The, the pot leaf is everywhere. That bright green uh, is everywhere, right? So a lot of these things, while they represent things we love, um, and they are used in lots of ways, and in lots of ways they're used, you know, it's fine. Those those kind of design, tr- I call them tropes, you know, right? Those design tropes haven't helped release stigma, and there's a lot of work to be done there. So there's certain a, a certain design aesthetic that we try to maintain professional, and it's and that's not to say we don't use the pot leaf and that colored green doesn't come into play sometimes, but it's not our it's not our go to. And for sure, getting off that crutch is going to be a huge um, part of normalization. The other thing I'll say, Larry, is CBD has been an incredible boon. It's it, it's been an incredible hit to the normalization path, right? Uh, you know, cannabis light, <laughs> diet cannabis. Um, you know, and of course it's not, but I, I'm being flippant. But what I mean is, like, it's just a, a, an easier, more accessible access point for people who have may who may have been really impacted by the war on drugs by the immense negative uh marketing campaigns of the last 80 years against cannabis um as a you know quote drug so cbd has been a a a big part of uh not only growing the industry but really just being an entry point for you know recreational or medical for sure jim let me ask you a question really fast you know and i and i alluded to this before uh, as a guy who was there at the very beginning in Colorado and, and really helped usher it into the state, what would you say are the one or two things that you saw people in the industry do and, and how do you counsel your clients to help kind of promote this idea of normalization? Well, that's a <clears throat> good question. Yeah, at the beginning, we were all sort of feeling our way around in the dark. Um, the way I put it is that uh, there wasn't any uh, book we could go to. It, uh, we did. We relied heavily on California because they had had medical marijuana since 1996, and so we looked at them for, you know, cultivation, extraction, you know, retail models. But in many, many ways, we were inventing it on our own, and some of those businesses were very, very successful, <clears throat> made a lot of millionaires. Many, many failed as well. Because no, as I was, the way I put it is we threw a lot of spaghetti against the refrigerator and some of it stuck, but a lot of it fell off. For Will, um, yeah, I appreciate all that you're saying because I have my own opinions on you know, federal normalization, if you will. I hate to say the word federal legalization because, mm-hmm. as I've said many times, uh, who's the first federal agency that's going to come visit you? Uh, your right. cannabis business if we go federal. I've, so. I've heard your opinions on this, Jim. And I will say that for the most part, I, I'm t- actually on board with you. I think that there will always be, I don't want to call it a black market, although it, it is in a lot of, you know, for sure it is, but let's call it a farmer's market, right? Like I think that there will always exist this opportunity on a neighborly scale to, you know, share the the bounds of our harvest without having to go to a retail store. Now, with that said, 
I'm totally for full federal legalization because, <laughs> I mean, for what I think are obvious reasons, you know, I mean, huge social impacts, arrests of, you know, the, the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives, countless people in jail for, for low-level drug offense, like all of that stuff, you know, like it just makes sense. We're, we're at a time where the states are having, weirdly enough, I would say, and in, in, I'm specifically talking about cannabis now, I don't want to like overreach, but states are having, you know, a more responsible outlook. And I would say mostly states do on social circumstances. Yeah. But And I do have a, a quick federal update. Uh, there's, I think, been three bills that have passed the House installed in the Senate. And now it looks like... Um, in the Senate, there's talk of combining the banking, <clears throat> um, the state's bill, which would uh, basically decriminalize, not legalize, but decriminalize cannabis at the federal level, and a fix on tax deductions, IRS Code Section 280E. There's talk of the Senate rolling all those into one bill. So there's a, a little bit of a federal update that I just uh, talking to a, a colleague about in the last day or so. Very cool. Well, now that a, a certain senator from the state of Kentucky is, you know, not holding as much power as he used to. It's possible that these things actually make more, mo more momentum than they have in the past. Hey, Rob, let me uh, let me bring you in here for a minute. Um, you really have, uh, I think, your finger on the pulse of the national market as well as anybody. And I'm really kind of curious as to uh, what your thoughts are on exactly what's going on and how you see the market growing. Yeah, well, there's now a new senator that holds a great deal of power from West Virginia. So, you know, it might not be a Senate majority leader, but it's certainly a, a Senate blocker on a lot of different uh, programs. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not we can still get a bill through the Senate based on the composition of the Senate today. Uh, you know, we certainly have the motivation, um, you know, from our vice president to, to see a bill get done. As I said before, Cory Brooker is certainly put in the right position to oversee, you know, certain regulatory agencies. So I'm more bullish than I've been, but I'm certainly not bullish in, you know, near-term prospects of anything going through. And as I said, you know, two weeks ago I had, uh, you know, Graham Boyd and Kershid Koja and, and Chris uh, Crane and uh, a handful of other people that run NCIA and run SSDP and run Normal, Evan Nissen from, uh, from Normal. And the, uh, the prevailing belief from all of them is that we're still, you know, three to five years, if not further out from full-blown federal legalization, despite the composition of the current Senate and the current executive branch. So, you know, I don't think people should be overly excited. I think incrementally we'll see a great deal of change. And we talked about this, you know, New York, I think, is a foregone conclusion this year. Where Will is in Vermont, you know, that went through the state house last year. And, you know, that was a great one to see. And certainly as of today, I think they just announced that 20 new towns in Vermont have opened up and said yes to, to recreational cannabis. So incrementally, we're still seeing the changes we want to see, and I don't think that you know we should be overly focused on federal legalization as long as the ball's moving in the right direction and it's not hampering the uh, the ability of the of the industry to move. Um, you know, I'd like to see you know the states act go through. I'd like to see 280E repealed, but other than that, I'm perfectly comfortable keeping the wolves at bay for a while longer and watching uh, the experiment continue, where a lot of the craft growers and a lot of the guys in Northern California and the smaller towns in, in Colorado you know, have multiple years to really get their businesses uh, fully functional before they, you know, get attacked by, by outside capital. Well, that's the thing about this thing moving slowly is that it does allow for smaller companies to to try to make an impact before the big ones come in. It does, and I know that's a point that Jim has often made in terms of be careful what you wish for with respect to getting full uh, legalization, right, Jim? Yes. Yeah, I was in Washington, D.C. a number of years ago, and a very prominent uh, congressman, he said, 
you know, Congress, the House, the Senate, we're at least five years behind public opinion, and that's intentional. We move very slowly here. We want to get everybody in line. We want to get all the facts. We want to let various coalitions come together uh, before we move forward. So we do have a slow-moving federal government, and I believe from what this congressman told me, it was built to be that way. Yeah, I'll tell you my minor victory of the week, Jim, is that uh, as of two days ago, Matt Gates now follows me on Clubhouse uh, in my Ask Me Anything About Canvas Club. And while I might not uh, agree with a single thing that's ever come out of Matt Gates's mouth, I love the fact that he might be an audience member for some of my talks where I can actually try to influence how he does feel about the canvas industry. Um, so, you know, when you start getting, you know, far right Republican congressmen that are listening and trying to figure out what's happening within the industry, I think that's good for all of us. I think you're right. Rob, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier about Vermont. So when Vermont uh, passed their uh, adult use bill, which t- when that passed there, it was set up uh, like a lot of legalization bills to give provisional, uh, you know, a provisional head start to the medical companies that have. Yeah, like my buddy Shane Lynn at Champlain Valley. Totally. So what uh, some of the new votes that you just touched on the what's called it's called town meeting day every town in vermont you know comes together in the town hall or the school gymnasium or whatever and they vote on you know the local things that that town needs do we get a new traffic light uh who's the new you know cop whatever all that stuff you know mrs mcgillicuddy's cow keeps you know getting in the road uh all of these things so in regards to S-54, the legalization bill, uh, a lot of towns voted whether or not they would opt into uh, having retail stores in uh, their towns. Uh, and some of them, uh, the ones that voted yes, of those, a few of them uh, rewrote the bill to exclude that head start. So th- there will be even smaller craft cannabis uh, companies existing at the same time, Shane Lynn opens, opens his recreational doors, too, which is a great thing. I'm really psyched about that. And the thing I love about Vermont is Vermont's always been a very liberal state, but they've always had you know, a, a Republican governor. You know, Phil Scott right now being at the helm is a, uh, is a good thing. But then you've got David Zuckerman, who I've known for years, who's been one of the strongest proponents of cannabis uh, change I've ever met from back in the time when he was just a, uh, like an alderman. Yeah, so it was a bummer he didn't. He's not around right now. Yeah, it is. It's very much a bummer. Uh, and then obviously, you know, having TJ as your attorney general, you know, another another guy who's a very pragmatic guy that I used to work for in the uh, the Vermont um, in the Chittenden County District Attorney's Office when he was an assistant AG. And TJ is absolutely the right guy to be at the helm. So you've got some terrific people in Vermont politics that you know really think about the uh, the way the state should be run. It's no sh- it's no surprise that you know the movement happened out of the state house in Vermont rather than you know, in, in other ways. But, you know, if I think about all the states that are super pro-cannabis, you know, Vermont and Oregon have always come to my mind as, you know, the ones that have always been supportive, you know, which is why you've gotten so many great jam bands coming out of Vermont, you know, and why you've had That's so right. much music, you know, happening on Church Street and in Battery Park and all the other places, you know, that, that make Vermont so special. So totally. That's how I and that and and maybe we'll get into this further down the line. But that's how I found myself in Vermont. You know, I was a a young uh, hippie graduate of St. Lawrence University in upstate New York. You know, and I started a band there. And you know, where do hippie bands go when they graduate from college? They go to Boulder or Burlington. That's what that's what Grace Potter and Maddie Burr did. And they were in my band before they started their own thing. Matt Burr was in your band. I grew up with Matt Burr. That's awesome, man. Yeah. 
yeah. Mapper was in my band, yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great segue to move our conversation over to the musical side of things. And I saw in your bio you've been to over 100 fish shows, and I'm probably in the same category there. Seen them a lot. And I actually got to uh, to Coventry back in 2004. Yeah, same. It was a depressing weekend. <laughs> it was rainy and sad, and but still a good time. A L- lot of mud, a lot of mud. A lot of mud, yeah, but that's, you know, par for the course. It was. I have a quick Coventry story. So my Coventry story is it was the same weekend as my uh, 30th high school reunion. So I'm dating myself. But um, I stayed sober, and uh, I drove my friends home at midnight, and I said, I'm headed for Vermont. I'm headed for Coventry. This was from Hanover, Mass., about a four- or five-hour drive. And they, my friends said, you're crazy. You're not leaving now. You're going to the show? I said, yeah, I'm jumping on the highway right now, and I did. I drove through the night hit that traffic, that Coventry traffic, but I'd been to Bonnaroo several times and I knew some of the tricks. So I just stayed in the left-hand lane of the highway, drove past Coventry, and it turns out the actual event was in the next town over. It wasn't actually in Coventry. Do I have that correct, Will? Yeah, I think uh, in Newport, maybe. Anyway, um, I drove past the traffic, drove past Coventry. I got off the highway, and the locals were saying, hey, $15, you can park in my yard. <laughs> so I did, and this lady came up to me, and I'd just driven through the night. It was about sunrise at this point. And she comes up to me, goes, $15, you can park here. $50, you can get a room in my grandma's house. So I said, I'll take that. So I jumped in, got four or five hours sleep. Her husband, I left my car there. Her 80-year-old husband drove me to the gates of Coventry. I bought a ticket from a man from Japan, and I was in the show. There you go. That sounds. That sounds like a. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty typical fish story. It sounds like a typical fish story. <laughs> madness, madness in order to get in the gates. That's how it always is for me. Every time, even you know, from when I was a kid, even till you know, recently, it's always some mad dash for something magical. But it's always worth it. Well, some people criticize that the band didn't play that well at Coventry, but it had its moments. Um, and the You Enjoy Myself, uh, I think that ended the first set. And there was a really wonderful David Bowie first night, first set. So it had its moments. But, uh, yeah, the band was uh, probably not at its best that weekend. When you see Trey crying on, it's like when you, uh, you know, when you see your dad cry for the first time. When you see Trey cry on stage, it's like, oh, no, no, you, not you. <laughs> Right. And here's my question about that, right? Because we have a situation where you went to a concert, everybody kind of knew that, at least for the time being, they were saying goodbye. And, you know, we all hoped and assumed that there would be a, a, a next round, but at the time, nobody knew for sure. And as a deadhead, maybe in 1974, right before they took their year off, but, but it wasn't the same, you know. It, it, in other words, as deadheads, we never really had an opportunity to go to a show knowing for better or for worse, that this was the last show. Some of us just happened to be in Soldier Field for what turned out to be the last show. But, you know, and maybe we were crying because Jerry's performance had dropped dramatically and we were, you know, hoping that maybe he would take some time off and bounce back. But that's, that's, that's a very interesting mindset to go to see this band. I imagine it was probably like going to, um, the last waltz, right? When you're going in to see the band play their final show. And as they play each song, it's like, wow, this is great, but that's it. Yeah, you'd never know that, you know, some of those guys uh, uh, in the band were 
were unhappy because that's one of the best recorded concerts I've ever heard in my life. You know that that show and you know that's those are pros right there yeah i will say larry there's nothing there's nothing more um you know and because i i have both of these experiences of you know it was fun but it was sad being in at coventry uh but then flash forward to um 2009 in virginia um and i was there for those three nights and when the lights dropped and you know and those guys walked on stage. It's as if that place Magic. was going to, you know, and they call it the mothership. It was as if that place was going to lift right off the ground. It was like redemption. Hampton comes alive. Well, so, A, they opened with Fluffhead, right? Which it, Fluffhead, which be like the dead coming out and opening with St. Stephen. So, exactly. I mean, that was pretty cool. And, yeah, the uh, Hampton Coliseum, I saw more than my share of dead shows there, including the breakout of Box of Rain that they had there in 86, I want to say. So, uh, it, that was that was the place to see. We drive halfway across the country to see them there. That was a, a great great place. We really liked it a lot. Right. A lot of I fun. saw formerly formerly known as the Warlocks there. Oh, you saw the Warlocks show in '89 there. It was in uh, spring of '92 actually. Oh, '92. Okay, I don't know why I was thinking '80. Right, formerly the Warlocks, and they did their show. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Also, that was a lot of fun. We have fish back, and they're healthy and sober and playing great. Although when I listen to some of their early shows, I'm amazed. You know, this was before I started seeing them. I think my first fish show was 95. Um, how good they were at the beginning, in the very early years. Yeah, they were, they were, they slayed. <laughs> they crushed it. Those, those 90s, you know, those 90s years are the, for, for fish nerds, those are the, the fabled years, you know, and then like the cow funk era of, of, you know, the Vermont, the Vermont jam cow funk stuff and, and all those years. My first show was in 94. I was 13 years old. It was my first concert, um, and it was actually uh, recently featured on the dinner and a movie uh, thing. It was the. Uh, it, it's actually like a, you know, in the world of fish, a kind of a famous show, and it was uh, Great Woods in '94, and it was their la- the last Game Henge show, the show they where they played the last full uh, Game Henge set, and that was my first concert and my first fish show. Yeah, and my dad was in the parking lot reading a book, uh, and now I, I can't even think what he was thinking. You know, my my dad's pretty straight laced, but you know he's he's sitting in the parking lot reading, uh, you know, uh, a Winston Churchill biography or some something like that, and he's you know being surround you know he's surrounded by weird fish people, weird hippies, you know, and the whole spectacle. So who knows what he thought? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. You know, that's, that's really a lot of fun. You know, you talk about the early years, and they did. They, they killed it in the early years. But, you know, guys, that reminds us of our conversation last week, right? And we were talking about the uh, 69 shows, uh, and we had even talked before that about, you know, the, the earlier Avalon uh, ballroom shows. And I think there is something magical about those early years for these bands when they're first finding their, their legs and, and really, uh, you know, really, really making it happen. And just, you know, so that we're, we all know, we did talk about it in our last episode for anyone who wants to go back and listen to it all about those 69 shows. And sure enough, this week, uh, I just, uh, in fact, wrapped it up last night uh, with the fourth of the four shows from the Fillmore. And I have to tell you, once a year, I take the time to listen to all four of them. And each year, it's more fun than the next. So, um, you know, that, that early magic for any of these bands is, is great stuff and a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah, it's really fun to see a band put in the work. Like that's that's the stuff I love seeing. My biggest year of fish was 1991. I saw the entire Giant Country Horde tour. 
I think I might have missed one show that summer tour, and I worked at Arrowhead Ranch that summer. So, you know, you want to talk about just a, a tour that was unbelievably fun to be on. It ended in Amy's Farm and, you know, played the, uh, the Townsend uh, State or Townsend um, Park and uh, Berkshire Performing Arts Center in Keene, New Hampshire. Oh, man, you're bringing it back for me. I yeah. see all my Max L 90s from that entire tour in my, my mind's eye. That, that was, uh, <laughs> that was, I mean, that was by far my biggest year for fish. Um, I'll tell you quickly, my Coventry story is I was not there, but they simulcast it at the time. And uh, for years, you know, I knew that one of my best friends growing up, his older sister had gone to Taft and gone to UVM with Trey. And he'd, he'd always said they were such close friends. And uh, we always kind of just discounted it. And we're like, yeah, you know, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. And then that night, Trey played Wolfman's brother and did the explanation of Wolfman's and uh, talked about the line. The telephone's ringing. I handed it to Liz. And he goes, it's Liz Durfee who I was talking about. And if you hear the tape, and all of us were like, no way. It really, like, you know, because uh, my, my good buddy was Chris Durfee. So to hear like Trey on stage at the final show, what we thought was the final show, come out and say that that line was written about Liz Durfee, all of us like stared at each other like, he was telling the truth the whole time. So it was it was really funny. That was my Coventry moment uh, from the living room of my house in Boston at the time. That's awesome. That's a lot of fun. Um, but here, b- before we run out of time, I want to make sure that we don't lose track of uh, uh, the other topic that, uh, that we lined up here today, Rob. And I know you put a little bit of time into it at the outset, and that's... Uh, that we're at a time of year for deadheads when uh, notwithstanding the fact that we're, you know, 25, 30 years post Jerry now, uh, this still is when people would start to think about the next year of, uh, of a dead cycle, right? We, we, we'd always ended on the new year shows. Uh, and then typically we'd get the uh, Chinese new year shows in late January, followed by the Mardi Gras shows, uh, in late February. Uh, and they were great shows because they were usually two or three off, not part of a tour. Uh, so really good energy for the band, played at home, so there was no travel issues for them. Uh, they'd break out new stuff. And, you know, they, they each had their own thing, right? The, the the Chinese New Year show, they'd always have the dragon dance, which was awesome. And the Mardi Gras show was, well, that was freaking Mardi Gras. They brought it to San Francisco. So, you know, that was great, too. But uh, did you have any experiences in any of those shows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's move away from um, from you know the, the sadness of Coventry and let's talk about the celebration of the Grateful Dead in the uh, the you know February and March time. I caught Chinese New Year in 1992, which is when they broke out the new Speedway Boogie for the first time since '71. I got the um, uh, actually that might have been '91. '92 is when they broke out um, all the new tunes like um, you know so many roads and Wave to the Wind and Karina. You know, I, I saw them play with Ornette Coleman uh, one of those times. I saw them play with Ayrto Marina uh, multiple times. Wow. Like, that was the time of year where, where like, if they were going to bring new material out and they were going to test it before they took it out on spring tour, they brought it out then. Yep. Some of the best nights of my life were in the Oakland Coliseum in, you know, 91, 92, 93. So um, I'm looking, looking at some of those right now, and uh, you had one Chinese New Year, one year I think that they did both Chinese New Year and Mardi Gras, and then a couple Mardi Gras. But then I think back to the ones I missed, and I think about the ones in the late 80s where, you know, they either brought out uh, Cyril Neville or they brought out the Dirty Dozen. You know, so one of the shows I asked Will to take a listen to, and by the way, I love the fact that Will, when he thought we were listening to a different show, came back and he's like, you're going to make me listen to an audience recording? Come on, man, don't waste my time. <laughs> and, and then when I, sent him, when I sent him the one I wanted to listen to today, his reaction just came back. He's like, a soundboard, thank you. <laughs> you know, so... So uh, you know, so I had you listen to uh, I think it was the 1987 Mardi Gras with the uh, with the the Ico Ico with the Dirty Dozen. So what did you think of that one, Will? I was so stoked. Well, because I was listening to that first show, and I'll listen to an audience recording, but you can't hear vocals, you can't hear Jerry, like you can't hear the high end of you know the pianos and stuff like that. So when you sent me this new show, I was really psyched. 
not only because it was a soundboard recording, but because of the set list. On paper, I mean, this was an awesome show. On paper, this could be like the best show I've ever seen in terms of set list. This has all of my favorite, uh, you, you know, my favorite Bobby songs. It has my favorite Grateful Dead song on it. Uh, and that's hard to say. I have like a hundred favorite Grateful Dead songs, but it has my absolute Mississippi half step is my favorite Grateful Dead song. That's on this set list. And then the second, you know, the last, geez, the last, you know, right after drums in space, that whole two, four, five songs there, you know, well, the last four songs, Warfrat and Throwing Stones, Touch of Grey, broke like, are you kidding me? That what a what an amazing set list. But um I was really psyched uh to discover, you know, the Dirty Dozen Brass Band on this because, you know, my my experience with that with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band is Panic. More well, yeah, a little more contemporary. Um, and I was like, who is, you know, I had to research. I, I was looking back and I was like, who are these, who's this horn section? Um, and it took him a minute to get it all figured out. Like I noticed, you know, uh, you know, Billy, Billy and Mickey were, were a little, a little soggy in there for a second, but once it like got in, like it was, it was perfection. It's such a good set. I'm glad this is the show you sent me. And, and you can't have a Mardi Gras without a Nyko. I mean, just no, saying. It, definitely not. Well, but it's more than that, Rob. To me, um, you know, Ico was my second show ever in uh, Syracuse in 1982. uh, And we were, our brains were clearly in another place at the time. And they came out of space into Ico. (laughs) And at that moment, I just decided I love the Grateful Dead and I love Ico. And then it always became a challenge, you know, where could you catch up with it? And I always figured if they were playing it, it just meant that Jerry was in a good mood, you know, and kind of like that little playful, you know, call and response mood that goes with it and everything. But yes, on Mardi Gras, it's an automatic. And this, I've heard this one before, uh, especially because of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. Uh, and it, it's got that real Mardi Gras growl to it. But what I like is, you know, the thing about Ico is you can find three different people and they'll all sing it differently. I was going to say the same thing, Larry. I noticed that they were singing different lyrics than Jerry would normally sing. Yet Jerry still sang the yep. lyrics yep. that he, he sings. <laughs> I was just going to say the history of Ico is um, it was a New Orleans street march, traditional New Orleans uh, yeah. street music. As is, you know, uh, much of the stuff like that they do that they've taken and you know and, and grabbed to their own. And, and if you check out Ico, uh, you know, it's got an interesting history in terms of who's credited as the as the writer. Uh, my introduction to it was by the dead at that uh, uh, Syracuse show, but I immediately then ran out and bought Dr. John's album, Gumbo, because he's got a great version of Ico on there. And uh, but uh, I have a tape from a uh, 1984 show at uh, Brendan Byrne with Stephen Stills, who came out and played with the boys and out of space. They, they played a song called Black Star and then they played it into Ico and he sings a couple of the verses. And, and, and I had never heard the verses sung the way he sang them. So, you know, I, I just love that about the song. I think even Aaron Carter recorded it once when my kids were younger. They had a, you know, one of those greatest hits for pop singers and there was an Aaron Carter version of it. And even he couldn't screw it up. You know, it's just too much of a fun it's tune. A jam. It, it is. And when you hear it, you know that everybody's just in a good mood. And, and this version with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, yeah, they're having a great time, Rob. This is a great call. So good. Yeah, and I was I was particularly happy because it's a Brent show. And, and Brent's, Brent's my favorite. I love that dude. We talked about that last week, too. So tons of steel. Like, not a song. You know, I looked it up. 
Not a, they only played it 20-something times or something like that. But Tons of Steel stands out for me because... It's so good. He's got the very, very brief harmonizing with Phil. Oh, my God. Couldn't travel as fast. The speed of rumor flies. These wheels are bound to trump the track. And him and Phil, all of a sudden, are, and it's like, I loved it when they'd play that song because Phil would step up to the mic and harmonize with them. And it was just, you know... That's my guy. So, so I, I never, you know, I never got to see the great, the Grateful Dead. I grew up going to see. I, I wasn't going to out you, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad you outed yourself. Yeah. I, I never got to see him. I had a ticket to go see them at the Boston Garden in uh, 1995, uh, September of 1995. Um, Me too. I wish I still had that ticket because that'd be something. But you know, it was right before they tore down the Boston Garden. Um, and obviously, you know, Jerry died in, in August of, of 95. So, you know, I, I didn't get to see them. So I grew up going to see, you know, Phil Lesh and friends and, and fish, as I said, but also, yeah, rat dog and dark star and all those bands. And, you know, I always gravitated more towards the, the Phil and friends scene like that. That's what I love to see. So fast forward to being in New York city um and working for apple because i had this i don't know why i got chosen to be i think it's because i came from apple from a band um but they asked me to be like the celebrity guy so i you know i sold stuff to lou reed and i'm a big guy and lou reed comes up to like my belt uh so it was always (laughs) fun like seeing him uh rest in peace lou reed um But uh, Trey was a customer of mine, and wow. we'll save those stories for another time. But um, one day, <laughs> I'm at my store, um, and someone comes and gets me and says, hey, there's there's someone here that you need to see. And I walk downstairs. I don't know if you guys have ever had this moment where you meet celebrities uh, or maybe even members of the Grateful Dead, um, and you're like – you look at them and you're like, I know you. You're like, oh, what's up? You know, like you see them and you're because you, you know you have the context of seeing their band forty thousand times or seeing them on TV or whatever it is. So I had that experience where I was, you know, Phil Lesh is standing at the bottom of the stairs of the Apple Store where I work, <laughs> uh, and wants and and needs and needs an iPhone. Uh, and I was asked to sell him an iPhone, and and I just had that experience of just being like, "Oh, hey, what's up, <laughs> Phil? Like, good to see you again. How how you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean?" So I sold him an iPhone. I sold him and his wife Jill iPhones. And two days later, I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn, and my wife and I are having dinner or something, and my phone's next to me, and I look down, and it says uh, it's ringing, and it says Phil Lesh on my phone, and I'm like. <laughs> Oh my God, he's calling me right now. Um, and of course he was just calling to be like, Hey Will, how do I set up my email on my phone or whatever it was? You know, like I can't connect to Wi-Fi. Will, what do I do? But it was just like, it was like, you know, I have to ask, were you like, I'll tell you the answer to that. If you tell me why you shelf box of rain until 86. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And this is the reason I worked with the celebrities because I was cool as a cucumber on the inside. I was freaking out, you know, freaking out, but I would just be like, yeah, Phil, you just go to settings and, uh, you know, just tap the thing and hit Gmail. You're, you're good to go. Um, but inside I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, sure, of course. but what did happen is, uh, we kind of became friendly. I worked with him a bunch of times. He gave my wife and I passes to 
we saw them uh, at the Brooklyn, where the Brooklyn Cyclones play, uh, and we had you know laminates and all that stuff. Um, he gave us backstage passes to the garden. So this is where my story gets stupid. This is where I turn into the fan, okay, the the crazy person. So Phil Lesh of the Grateful Dead, one of my all-time heroes, puts my wife and I on the guest list at Madison Square Garden, the greatest venue on the planet Earth, uh, probably in the entire universe, right? So we get there, and we live in Brooklyn, and so we take the F train right up to the garden and walk right in and go up to the the window and say, I'm Will Reed. I'm on a list. Uh, And they look at the list. They're like, no, you're not. Get out of here. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm on there. I'm definitely on there. Uh, and they're like, no, you're not. See you later. Uh, so I'm standing in the middle of the garden without tickets to a show I definitely want to do. And I did this. It turned out fine. But I did the stupidest fan thing, which is I texted the rock and roll star who was 40 minutes from going on stage at the biggest venue. I, I texted Phil and I said, Hey, Phil, uh, those tickets aren't at will call. <laughs> Can you send somebody? And sure enough, like five minutes later, we had our, we had our tickets and we were in. And, and I love that man. Like that man will, can fr- call me any time of day and ask me how to set up his iPhone. I haven't worked at Apple for 10 years, but I'll, I'll do anything he asks. That's great. Well, that's a great story, Will. And I agree 100% with what you're saying. For seven or eight years, I was a rock and roll photojournalist. <clears throat> I got to meet Phil, and I got to meet Trey, and lots of other famous musicians. I got John Poplar a glass of water at Bonnaroo. I was always in the uh, spirit of uh, Hunter S. Thompson. I always made sure I was the most fucked up one in the press tent. <laughs> but I had a great time with it. So I agree with uh, everything you're saying. It's like, yeah, I know you. Yeah. I've listened to your music for years. How you doing? Same with Trey. I was walking down the stairs at the Cube of Fifth Avenue, you know, the most famous Apple store. And I was walking down the stairs, and it was the middle of winter. And I turned to my left, and Trey was right next to me walking. And I just said, oh, hey, what's up, man? Just like that. And he's like, hey, how you doing? And, like, that was that. And then I, you know, similar things happened where I, I got to meet Trey. And, you know, he he, he you know is my hero like that's the guy i started seeing when i was 13 right so surreal experiences man surreal experiences sometimes they're out there you know like you just have to you just gotta look for them they're there and that's same goes with can of planters you know all of that all of that weirdness all of that being uncomfortable or pretending to be comfortable and that's that's played heavily into starting this company too well i hear that a lot I think that one of the things that really kind of ties all of this up very nicely and and what I love about talking with Will and all of his enthusiasm, even as a guy who, you know, who never saw the Grateful Dead, right? He 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 just missed it. And we've talked about this all the time, you know, but you're talking about music that spans generations and you're talking about music that appeals to such a wide group of people. And, you know, even for me, I can sit here and say this. In fact, I'll give a quick shout out to my son, Matthew, who's in the clubhouse today listening to our show, uh, who's a big deadhead. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it just flows through the years. And so I've been trying to come up with interesting quotes. Here's my quote for the day from Garcia. He, he told... Uh, um, uh, Matt Donsler from the Philadelphia Bulletin, and this is, mind you, 1978. I think that even our younger fans are the same kind of people as the last generation of deadheads. They're the seekers, the people who think there's more to it all than the regular rap. Now, that's 1978. I hadn't come on board yet. My younger brothers came on board after me. My kids have come on board after them. 
This is just generation after generation. And I think that re really says is, what do all of us on this call have in common? We think there's all, there's something more to it all than the regular rap. And we, you know, we, we, we live that out by going to see bands like The Dead and Fish that, that play to that theme and say, no, it doesn't just have to be that way. There's other ways that it can be. And it attracts what I like to say are free thinkers like us uh, you know who were just really taken in by that by that that frame and uh, frame and uh, way of life, and in that regard, Will, you know it is great to have you on the show, and and it's always nice to see that there's you know younger people who come to it with the exact same level of excitement, enthusiasm as I do, or Jim does, or Rob does, you know, and and we're the old farts in the room, so you know, good for you and good for everybody out there listening, who's you know even if you're just discovering them today, you're never too late to the party. Well, I, I will say that that's certainly one thing that, you know, even John Mayer has had a huge impact on, on exposing um, that kind that music to a whole new group of people. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I've always been fascinated. You know, like I, I love I love the Grateful Dead. Their music is to me a, uh, y you know, a narration of american history in in so many ways but there's you know except for maybe like willie nelson i can't think of some a, a band or a songwriter who is so embedded in the sonic nature of america than the grateful dead and yeah but uh, rob really quickly uh can you give the uh listeners maybe a quick preview of what we have on tap for next week yeah, I think next week we're uh, we're going to talk about Pigpen. He, uh, he passed away in March of 1973, yep. on March the 8th. So to celebrate Pigpen's life, I think we're going to talk about the influence that he had in the late 60s and early 70s with just monsters like Love Light and Big Boss Man and Alligator. I'll come back if you need. I'll talk Pigpen all day long. Sure. So I was going to say maybe we had to schedule a few extra hours for that one, but that's a great topic and uh, <laughs> I, excellent. We look forward to that. So. Um, then I guess we'll head over to Clubhouse. Uh, Will, thank you again for joining us. Will Reed was our guest today. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, he's at Canna Planners. And Will, just really quickly, do you have a, uh, a uh, yeah. web page or a uh, email address that people can find you at? Imagine being a web company without a web page. Yeah, well, that's true. That'd be awesome. It would be. <laughs> where, where do we find you? Yeah, find us, uh, find us on all the social channels, including Clubhouse, at Canna Planners. Uh, find us online at canaplanners.com. That's C-A-N-N-A-P-L-A-N-N-E-R-S.com. And then shoot me an email, info at canaplanners.com. I'd be happy to talk to you about your cannabis business. And, and one last thing from me, guys, as we uh, as we sign off here, I would also be remiss if I uh, didn't give a special shout-out today to my father, Marvin Mishkin. It's his birthday. He's 90 years old today. Happy birthday, Dad. Uh, Jim Marty had a chance to meet my father a couple of years ago in St. Louis at uh, one of the first cannabis conferences we had there. And it was actually a, a, a wonderful experience for me because after all these years of being a cannabis attorney, and my father always kind of looked at me slightly askance, you know, what the hell are you doing? He came down, he heard me give a presentation, he saw people ask me questions afterwards, he got to walk through and see all of the exhibits. He met Jim Marty, and all he could say afterwards was, wow, this really is an industry, isn't it? And I was like, welcome to the party, Dad. That's great. Yeah, that's a great story, and I really enjoyed well, meeting you, Dad. So happy birthday, Dad. And uh, for all of our listeners, uh, thanks for listening in. Uh, we will be back next week, but don't leave us and head over to Clubhouse where the uh, conversation continues. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.